Hi, I'm Ross Greenwood, and these are the Money Minutes. Today, China launches an anti-dumping investigation into our wine industry. Here, Penfolds maker Treasury Wine Estates drops 14%. Plus, while lack of population growth might be the real worry for house prices and jobs in Australia. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode. This one, well, not so much obliquely, I reckon, pretty much directly is all about our relationship with China. It's all about the population growth we're going to need in the future to recover from the economic downturn triggered by the coronavirus and also the recovery of our housing markets. But it's also about the wine industry. And I just wonder whether, well, maybe right now is the time that we sat down and had a wine with old friends. This episode is also about China's retaliation against Australia for calling for an inquiry into the source of coronavirus. Today, the Chinese Ministry of Commerce initiated an anti-dumping investigation into Australian wine exports in China. Now, this has been bought by the alcohol lobby groups in China that claim that Australian wine has been dumped there. In other words, it's been sold at cheaper prices in China than it is sold here in Australia. As a result of that, Australia's largest wine exporter, Treasury Wine Estates, its share price collapsed by 14% today. Its shares were suspended. The company says it will fully cooperate with any requests it receives from China. But the move by China is being interpreted as a retaliation against Australia's call for the coronavirus inquiry. And the words of the Chinese ambassador to Australia, Cheng Jingye, who said in a newspaper interview, maybe the ordinary people of China will say... Why should we drink Australian wine, eat Australian beef? It's interesting to note there have also been some sanctions against some parts of Australia's beef industry already. So, are we in a trade war now with China? Well, here's the take of the Trade Minister, Simon Birmingham. Well, Australia is certainly not engaging in any type of war. What we want is a constructive trading relationship, uh, one where we can work together in the areas of mutual interest. Uh, And what we have seen over a period of decades of economic and commercial engagement now, is that our cooperative relationship between China and Australia is of mutual and beneficial interest. It has sustained economic growth across both of our countries. It has helped to drive better living standards across both of our countries, and that's why we want to see that continue into the future. Now, it's interesting also to note that Simon Birmingham, who says that the Australian wine industry has, well, really got nothing to hide, then goes on to say it's now up to China to explain why it's treating Australia in this way given we have a free trade agreement and that wine is one of those areas that was specifically excluded from tariffs which allowed the Australian wine to be sold inside China. We do find this deeply troubling, concerning and, as I say, perplexing given Australia's wine industry is not subsidised to export uh, and it's certainly not dumping product uh, on the world market. And now it's for China and Beijing to explain the rationale behind these actions and why they have moved to the stage of an investigation. As I say, it's up to any country and any country can 
receive an application claiming allegations of dumping, and they can choose to investigate that. But we don't believe there's a prima facie case there uh, to warrant this investigation, uh, and that's why we believe there is such strong and compelling evidence to refute it. But there is also some context you've got to understand here, because what's quite clear is Australian wine has been sold cheaply in China. Now, just in the last week or so, you've seen with the results presentation from Treasury Wine Estates, the new chief executive, Tim Ford, come in. He also had all of his people from the regions, including those from Asia, explaining the dynamics of what's taken place. Now, he was questioned by analysts about the pricing of wine wholesale retail in China. And of course, post the coronavirus, when demand fell, there was excess stock. And so prices came down. And there's a second factor about this you'll hear Tim Ford talk about, and that is about some websites, online sales of Treasury Wine Estates, famous Penfold wines, that somehow gets out there cheaper than what even Treasury Wine Estates is selling it for themselves. I certainly don't believe we have a widespread issue in terms of our wholesale retail pricing across across the major markets, across any of the channels. They have, I, I firmly believe they have been isolated uh, you know, and we've seen, you know, particularly on some of the bin ranges, bin 389 as an example, you know, we know there's been pricing that's uh, particularly on online channels um, that we uh, we would not want to see in that market and uh, and hasn't continued once we've actually got underneath how, uh, how the stock has been received by some of these uh, customers and partners within the market there in China. So, yeah, from my perspective, our retail pricing um, is holding up effectively. You know, we have not decided to take price increases this year. That's a really important point, which is something we've done consistently over the last five years is take price increases, but certainly just to manage the market and ensure that we have a much better view given the uncertainty around the future demand profile. You know, we just wanted to maintain the pricing structures as best we can um, until we have much better understanding of the, not only the pace, but also the demand of recovery. Which all makes you just wonder as to whether it's time that we all sat down Maybe over a glass of wine. Tried to work this out. Or is it just too late for that? The other big issue that indirectly is all about China is about population growth here in Australia. As we are well aware, the housing market that saw really significant price increases in both Melbourne and Sydney, to a lesser extent in other state capitals, was about, well, let's be honest, Chinese buying. They called it foreign buying, but it was in many cases, especially for apartments, it was Chinese people trying to buy here locally, send their kids to school here. So the other aspect of this is, what happens if the Chinese don't want to send their students to Australia in the future? Because one aspect of Australia's recovery from coronavirus, whenever that might be, six months, 12 months, five years, three years, take your pick on the number. But it's got to be about population growth. Because there is a fundamental problem here in Australia at the moment. Our population is not growing quickly enough. And the ramification of that is, number one, we will not have enough taxpayers in the future to pay those people who have really spent their superannuation during this period of time when they're unemployed, and to a second extent, to the future of house prices, where most Australians' store of wealth is. I now want to bring into this conversation on population and property prices somebody who's doing work on it as we speak. 
Now, this is Tim Reardon, who is the Chief Economist at the Housing Industry Association around Australia. Now, he's making the very astute observation that unless Australia's population growth at some stage starts to rise again, then property values and indeed the whole nation of Australia's property stock is going to get left well behind. Uh, He joins me now, the Chief Economist of the Housing Industry uh, Association, Tim Thanks for your time. Just explain, you know, this is stock in trade for the economist at the Housing Industry Association, I know, to study population, because population really is one of the drivers of um, housing development um, and also, indeed, of, uh, of property values themselves. That, that's right. And so what we've seen uh, over the last couple of years is since April 2017, the government announced some additional restrictions on visas. And as a consequence, we've seen net overseas migration slow over the last couple of years. In fact, the government puts out three projections, uh, or the ABS put out three projections for population growth. In the last two years, they have undershot the lowest case of those uh, three projections. And so as a consequence of that, we're, we're revising downwards our forecast for home building over the course of this decade. And in addition to that overseas migration, we've also seen the natural rate of population growth in Australia slow as well. Quite why that, that natural rate of population growth has slowed isn't as evident as, as the overseas migration story. So I want to go to the last Bureau of Statistics numbers, which come out to the end of December last year, which showed, as you indicated, uh, around a 1.39% population population increase, which is the slowest it's been probably since 2005. Um, There was, give or take, 350,000 net increase in our population to 25.5 million. But as I go through those statistics, one thing I do note is even though we had periods, say for example, in the late 90s into the early 2000s when population growth was much lower than that, When I go back to those years immediately after our last recession, of course, we're in recession now, Mm. it really did show enormous slowdown, below 1%. And so one of the consequences, it seems, of a recession or economic downturn in Australia is the population stops growing. And that has some fundamental issues for what is actually one of our largest economic drivers in Australia. Yeah, that's very true. Now, that 1990s cycle is quite different from what we're seeing playing out at the moment. And so population growth or net overseas migration is attracted to jobs. And Australia at that period of time had was creating very few jobs and we saw very little economic growth. And as a consequence, those two factors constrained the economy. During the 1990s, there was another factor that started to draw us out, and that was easing of access to finance and more readily available access to finance meant more home building, more business activity that created more jobs, which drew in more population growth. In this cycle, we've got an enormous variability as to what can happen to population growth. Of course, if we come out of this quite strongly and the Australian economy shows all signs that it will, then we may well get back to attracting a reasonably strong level of population growth again relatively quickly. So that 1.5% population growth that we have exceeded for most of the past decade and, as you say, uh, have undershot over the last couple of years is really the key to working out when the Australian economy has recovered. When we hit that 1.5% population growth, 
we'll know at that point that we're on the path to recovery. But of course, many people listen to this podcast will say, hang on, hang on, the borders are closed. We can't have people coming into the country right now as a result of the fear of the spread of coronavirus. And indeed, if people are coming in, they've got to self-quarantine in hotels at their cost, all that type of thing. So uh, you're looking further across the horizon, aren't you? And not according to the immediate health crisis right now. That's right. We're certainly not looking at what's going on in Victoria in the, the last couple of weeks. It's a very different situation. Um, we, we are looking really 2022 and beyond. And until a decision is made around when that overseas migration returns, uh, it's, it's very challenging to look at what the, uh, what the what the outlook is for the Australian economy. Okay, but then there's another part of this, and that is the cranes on our skyline eventually are going to start to disappear. And so many of the high-rise apartment units, uh, unit, unit blocks, uh, and indeed many other developments are going to start to become completed. Now, at that case, there's a sort of a natural balance that's actually created between the population in Australia and the number of units uh, or apartments that might be available at that time. Unless you get demand, you're really not going to get much building going on into the future because developers are not going to take the risk. Banks are not going to take the risk on apartment blocks being left left empty. And that's one of the fundamental issues that is driving this argument about, in the future, increasing Australia's population. That's right. And we're probably looking at half a million jobs across that multi-unit uh, construction sector. And as we hit particularly that September timeframe, we start to see the number of units under construction slow. And given that they're very densely populated in, in Sydney and Melbourne, um, that leads to a, a rise in unemployment and a slower and wider economic activity across the economy. And so that's certainly a concern. At this stage, we expect that multi-units will contract by a further 40% over the course of the next 12 months. Now, that's off uh, a peak of a couple of years ago, so they're already back 15 to 20%, and that 40% will see a, a, a very rapid acceleration, particularly in the high-rise apartment sector. We expect that the low two, three, four-storey apartment construction will continue uh, pulling back by just about 4 or 5% in comparison to, to multi-units. But there's another aspect of this as well. You're saying that Australia will not go back to what we experienced, the sort of wealth we experienced in 2000. 2019 for a number of years, even if we were to get, um, you know, a, a vaccine for the pandemic, and then that subsequently spurned a rapid recovery from the recession we're in right now. It's going to take some time for it genuinely to bounce back. That's right. If we look at uh, well, the government's expectations, the economy will contract by close to 10% in the June quarter. Even if we were to return to 3% GDP growth next year, it's going to take a number of years before we get back to, to the level of wealth we saw at the end of 2019 and probably mid-2023 before we get there. That's, that's using Treasury forecast assumptions. And are there any states that are more or less affected by this trend as a result of the, the, the decline in the population growth Australia is seeing? Certainly, Victoria has been very reliant on strong population growth for their wider economic growth for the past decade. They've achieved greater than 2% population growth for a decade, and that's really unprecedented for modern Western democracies. At the other end of the spectrum is Perth, which has not attracted skilled migrants over the past five years as they went through a downward cycle. So we expect a, a little bit of a contrast between those two regions, and WA will continue to uh, be counter-cyclical to what's going on in the rest of the economy. So 
We expect WA to be the only region that sees an increase in home building over the course of the next 12 months as they start to attract back skilled workers from Victoria at the same time that the Victorian economy is slowing through this COVID recession. So this, as we always point out, it's about demand and it's about the supply and that leads to, shall I say, almost the boom-bust cycle in terms of prices because price is a function of demand. And so the real issue is if not enough homes are built, um, if there is suddenly a change in the population rate in the future, that can lead to spikes in prices. But quite on on the other side at the moment, while we don't have that population growth coming through and we can't leave it to the natural rate of population growth here. We just don't breed fast enough. Um, it's a situation where prices are clearly going to be fairly stagnant, if not falling, while that population growth is very, very low. Yes. So you, you, lots of our economic indicators are ricocheting around at the moment. And yes, house prices, you can see, they've been incredibly stable for what has happened to the economy. Two, two and a half percent decline in Sydney and Melbourne is really quite unremarkable. But If those uh, multi-unit constructions slow, then yes, in a couple of years' time, probably two to three years' time, we're going to see a situation, return of overseas migration, uh, return of economic growth, where that population growth is continuing and there aren't enough apartments being commencing construction right at the moment and therefore arriving on the market at that point. And that's the point at which we would see a a cyclical undersupply of particularly that higher density apartment. So it's quite foreseeable to see that cycle at the moment, but only if you know when governments are going to allow the return of overseas migration. And that's the the balancing act for, for governments right now. Politically, they don't want to be seen to be bringing coronavirus in a la a ruby princess. Um, yeah. or, or indeed the, uh, the the quarantine ho- hotels in in Victoria, but on the other side of it, they are have got the pressing economic need to try and get their their economies going again for the livelihood of their own people for more than anything else. And so this is really, from a politician's point of view, one of the most challenging decisions they're going to have to make over the next two to three years. It, it is indeed, and I think it's a, a really unique situation where we will arrive at the next federal election with the economy smaller than what it was at the last federal election. And and even during the Great Depression, there doesn't seem to have been that dynamic. And you're right, balancing out the economic needs of the population, the health needs of the population, are the the dynamic that they have before them. And finally, on this subject, it is still a case in point that it is population plus the affordability of those properties that really drives the prices. And so, you know, some could argue if the prices fell, there would be demand that would actually occur. But it's always been in my, in the back of my mind here that after the initial shock in 1987, when the stock market collapsed, and even though it was an economic recession, not a health, you know, sort of, if you like, related recession that we're in right now, it wasn't until four years afterwards that the economy actually entered the recession and it was really triggered very much by house prices falling after interest rates had gone to those record 17%. But it was actually the housing market that was really the trigger for the recession. And that's something that politicians have got to be highly conscious of as they navigate their way through the economy over the coming couple of years. That's right. And on that prices side of things, I think Sydney is probably the market that we're most focused on there, where costs of of supply of housing, particularly land, is seeing a restricted supply. And as we look at our early indicators in in this cycle, most of the other cities have seen a surge in new home sales following the announcement of HomeBuilder. Sydney's the one I'm concerned about that we haven't seen that pick up. And yes, that's 
precisely right. Home building has driven uh, both uh, the market into decline and pulled us out of recession in the past. The past two years, home building has been slowing, and that's pulled economic growth across the rest of the economy down. And, and the way we pulled out of that 1990s recession was structural changes to uh, lending for purchases of residential home and an easing of access to finance. And because for the past decade since the GFC, despite there not being evidence of a, a systemic risk within residential lending, either identified through the Hain Royal Commission or during the GFC, we've seen access to finance tightened and we've seen the number of first home buyers entering the market contract. And prior to the GFC, around about 21% of all loans issued were issued to people with a 10% deposit or less. What we're seeing now is they make up just 7% of mortgages being issued. That's because it's more expensive for banks to lend, or the restrictions and red tape on banks makes it harder for them to lend to particularly a first-home buyer with a 10% deposit. And the only side of the mortgage market that's growing are those with a greater than 20% deposit, which essentially means that unless you already own a home, it's harder to get a mortgage. And so interest rates are low, first-home buyers are more than ever able to service that mortgage. It's very difficult for them to obtain that mortgage in the first place. I'll tell you what, it really is instructional for politicians, for bureaucrats, and indeed for those people generally looking at the economy and also at investments about where we might be going into the future. The Chief Economist of the Housing Industry Association is Tim Reardon. And Tim, I appreciate your time today. Thank you, Ross. So that's it for the Money Minutes for another episode. Thank you for your company. Uh, Also, your feedback is very much welcome, no matter whether it comes through Facebook, Twitter or LinkedIn. And we'll make certain the podcast is out there on all of the popular podcast apps for you. We'll do it again soon. In the meantime, I'm Ross Greenwood and these are the Money Minutes.